Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. Now, on with the show. There was nothing quite like KISS and the band's painted-faced, wild rock and roll spectacle of a live show that ruled over much of the 1970s. But in 1978, on the epic Alive 2 tour, KISS hit a roadblock, or better yet, a blizzard. The concert, held at Richfield Coliseum that January, would prove legendary both for KISS being at the peak of its powers and for the massive amount of snow fans had to navigate. On this episode of CLE Rocks, Gene Simmons, KISS historians, and the KISS army who were there tell the story of the KISS Blizzard of 78 concert, a lively showcase that kickstarted one of the craziest winters in Ohio history. KISS's origins date back to the early 1970s and Wicked Lester, a New York City band led by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Looking to form a new project, the duo first came across veteran New York City drummer Peter Criss. An impressive audition from a lead guitarist named Ace Fraley would eventually round out KISS's classic lineup in 1973. David Leaf, co-author of the authorized biography KISS Behind the Mask, remembers the band's humble beginnings. What I understand is they started like every group probably ever started. You know, let's let's start a group and get girls. You know, and and the story of of my talking to them was interesting because Peter had like like a I don't know Bronx or Brooklyn accent. Um, I mean, it was definitely a borough accent, and, and and that surprised me. What else did I learn about Peter? He didn't he didn't want to tell me what year he was born. You know, I, at the time I didn't understand why that mattered, but now I understand how important it is to be young in rock and roll or young in whatever music or world you're in. Ace was, you know, interesting to say the least. Gene, Sheen was just so sharp, just so sharp. I mean, he, he clearly was, you know, is it right to say running, running the show from the business side of things. And, and Paul, from, from my point of view, watching them, Paul was the star. Kiss's first three albums released on Casablanca records weren't huge successes though 1975's Dress to Kill did feature the future hit Rock and Roll All Night. More importantly though, KISS was earning a reputation for its impressive live shows. Members hit the stage in their signature face paint in elaborate stage outfits. The production value seemed to grow with each show. Chris would perform on an elevating drum riser. Fraley's guitar would burst into flames during his thrilling solos. Simmons would spit blood and breathe fire. Stanley would prove to be one of Rock's greatest frontmen, oozing charisma as pyrotechnics exploded around him. Clearly, the genius of it was 
they had created these characters and they were going to be these characters. It's not like, you know, we see, we've seen, you know, David Bowie and, and Madonna and, and Lady Gaga, and they, they kind of, they have different personae based on where they are at that point in their career. I mean, David Bowie was David Bowie underneath it all, but sometimes he was the thin white duke, right? And sometimes he was on his way to outer space. This was, there was no question who they were. So it was like a Marvel comic book come to life. In a, in a rock and roll band. In 1975, KISS finally achieved its breakthrough in the form of its first live album titled Alive. The record went gold, with a live version of rock and roll all night reaching the top 20 on the charts. Destroyer still considered by many to be Kiss's greatest studio album, followed in 1976. The single Detroit Rock City would become the band's biggest radio hit to date. Kiss would release two more albums within 15 months of Destroyer. By the time the dust had settled on 1977's Love Gun, the group's highest charting album yet, Kiss had become one of the biggest bands in the world. Dennis Wallach was along for the entire ride as art director for as many as 20 of Kiss's albums. The people were just ready for it. Uh... Also, Kiss appealed uh, very much, I think, to younger, the younger guys out there, the younger set. I mean, 13 to 15-year-olds, kind of. Um, the older uh, rock and roll fans and critics thought Kiss sucked. <laughs> These guys, what is this? This is stupid. What is this stupid stuff on their face? What are their outfits they're wearing? They're trying to distract from the fact that they can't play. <laughs> and that they're lousy musicians. And they used to refer to bands back in the day, if you recall. If they didn't think they had a lot of uh, ability, but they looked the part like rock and roll, they call them a hair band, right? Uh, just, they're just a hair band. So, you know, Kiss was kind of like a hair band, except, you know, uh, to the extreme. But the guys in Kiss, to give them the credit that they deserve, they had a vision for themselves. They, uh, they saw Alice Cooper, and they saw the New York Dolls, who wore makeup, and uh, Alice had some some makeup, not a lot, but he had a little bit. But he was he was kind of over the top. He tried to do a show that was theatrical, more or less. Uh, he tried to, uh, you know, he had a snake, right? And uh, uh, Kiss wanted to give them a show. The whole idea was, who wants to pay whatever dollars it was at the time uh, to go see a big rock and roll concert and watch a bunch of guys up there with ripped T-shirts and sneakers? plan that's uh not visually exciting uh you know you can listen to the music yeah 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 but i want to see something i want to see a show so they want they knew the visual aspect was at least half the fun of going to see them you know gene was a big sci-fi fan and a monster horror fan that had a lot to do with uh their image his image especially uh, so they wanted to give people uh their money's worth basically and uh, uh they wound up you know appealing to generations of of uh 
of fans. I mean, you you have people now that saw them in 74, 75, let's say. If you were 15 or 16 or 18 at that time, how old are you now, 45 years later? You've got grandchildren, and uh, those grandchildren are KISS fans. After wrapping up its Love Gun tour in September 1977, KISS transitioned into the Alive 2 tour following the release of its second live album that October. KISS was now at its commercial peak, with merchandise flying off the shelves to the tune of $100 million a year. Membership for the KISS Army, the band's fan club, was said to be well over the 100000 mark. Ken Sharp, KISS fanatic and co-author of Behind the Mask, remembers there being a camaraderie among KISS fans, many of whom were outcasts that found solace in loving something different from the norm. Growing up and going to junior high and high school, I was, you know, known as kind of the KISS freak. And, you know, there were a lot of people in my school that didn't like the band, so I would get harassed and things like that and, you know, got into fights over it, you know, which is kind of crazy thinking about it now, but... When you went to a KISS show and you went once a year, say it was the Alive 2 show, there was this great feeling of connection and a feeling of communal uh, sharing experience that, wow, you're here in an arena with 18,000 other people that understand, you know what I mean, that, that aren't beating you up in junior high or high school that really get it. And that was also a really incredible experience just to... Uh, to share in that joy and that communal love of the band from the audience. Fittingly, the Alive 2 tour would feature Kiss's most elaborate production yet. Gene Simmons remembers how much effort went into that run. you got to remember that we were bringing in more pyro and stuff like that. And, you know, it was easier to be in the Eagles. God bless them. You show up with a, it's a peaceful, easy feeling. Bring your acoustic guitars, you don't have to worry about anything. And, you know, a tip of the hat to the great songwriting and singing in that band. It's got nothing to do with that. I'm saying it's easier to be in the Eagles than it is in Kiss. That also includes how many shows... We blew out their power because we had too much power on stage. And how many conversations we'd have at every single show with the fire marshal at every show. And other bands, none of the other bands had to do any of that. Or wear seven-inch platform heels. Or by that time, be wearing, I don't know, 40 pounds of armor, studs, and all that stuff. And have to spit fire. And hardest working band in show business, other than the glory days of James Brown. The show would feature explosions, smoke bombs drum and platform risers, a massive dragon logo, confetti, and dual staircases with fire surrounding them. It's a setup captured perfectly in the gatefold for Alive 2, perhaps the most iconic image of a KISS show, second only to the cover of the first Alive album, which Wallach says was the intention. Yeah, that was the uh, uh, absolutely the idea. wanted to show as much as we could in a photograph what the, sh- what the show is like. And, um, of course, it was their second live album, so it made sense. Uh, the first live album, we didn't have that sort of uh, forethought. Also, uh, the first live album, that tour, didn't have as much pyro and 
what have you. Probably the kiss side was half the size, you know, et cetera. They didn't have, you know, pneumatic risers that lifted up the drums and, uh, and, and Gene and Paul and all that stuff probably wasn't there for Alive. But by the time Alive 2 came, the stage was really a lot more complicated, a lot more exciting. And so, uh, we all decided, uh, sort of collectively, that, uh, we, for this next gatefold, we really should show, try to show the, the show. In one shot. The thinking behind it was, uh, look, everybody, this is what this is what their show looks like, you know, and the, the record is going to be what it sounds like. The set list for the Alive Two tour was nearly identical to that of the Love Gun tour, swapping out a few new songs here or there. But that didn't stop Kiss's latest tour from being one of the most anticipated of the year. Early shows featured opener ACDC before the Australian band took off in the United States. Many of the Alive 2 tour shows sold out immediately, including one at the Spectrum in Philadelphia that Sharp attended. I think it was the height of Kiss Mania, so there was an extreme excitement and hysteria uh, going on uh, around the country, around the world for Kiss. And I think it was something that lived up to the greatest spectacle you know, Gene Simmons would always talk a bit about, you know, the circus is coming to town and, you know, this is how the big boys do it. And, and But it, it's actually true back then, especially, you know, besides Alice Cooper, no one had really gone to the extreme in terms of creating these larger-than-life spectacles than Kiss. I mean, it was almost like a Broadway show in terms of, not the music, but in terms of the choreography and and the various things that were done. But... Uh, you know, there's a DNA that exists in pretty much every rock show today that you can, you can, uh, you know, point the dial back to Kiss. Even Paul McCartney in um, Live and Let Die, there's these tower of, you know, flames that go up at a pivotal part of the song, which is really dramatic, and I'm a huge Beatles fan. But, you know, all that stuff was, was taken from what Kiss did. KISS arrived at the Richfield Coliseum on January 8, 1978. By that point, the venue was hosting a who's who of Rock's Elite. KISS played Richfield in 1976, but this time around, the band was on top of the world. However, that January 8th show would become memorable for something beyond anyone's control, the weather. The winter in Ohio at the end of 1977 had been somewhat mild. In January, all hell broke loose. And it started the night of the KISS show, remembers concert attendee, Larry Cahill. It took forever to get there. There were already like cars off the side of the road because, you know, it was the back roads. It was very hilly getting there and you kind of had to surf. But again, I was a passenger. My buddy was driving and um, uh, he had a little, uh, I think it was, he, he borrowed his sister's Honda Civic. And at that time, all these guys had these, you know, muscle cars from the early 70s and with uh, big engines and rear wheel drive. So they were all spinning out. We had lots of cars on the side of the road, and he had this little Honda Civic, which was just a tiny little car, but it had front-wheel drive. So we were surfing up and down the hills, passing these other cars that were just struggling to get up and down with the rear-wheel drive cars at the time. The weather led to Kiss arriving late at the venue, and some of the stage effects were rendered useless. Still, the show was typical Kiss, opening with a fiery performance of I Stole Your Love.
for the Kiss Army, there was nothing like seeing the band. While Kiss's fame had reached the point of TV specials and late night appearances, the only way to truly experience Kiss was in a live setting, said Sharp. It was pretty mind-blowing. If you're really close to the stage, I mean, it was like a supersonic jet. You know, the sound of it, the volume was, was pretty fierce. And then you add flames and you add smoke bombs and, and uh, Gene blowing fire and spitting blood and Peter Chris's levitating drum set. And when the guys went up on the risers above the audience, Paul smashing his guitar, aces, aces, guitar, his smoking guitar, throwing out picks, people diving. But even as Kiss rocked Ridgefield, the snow continued to fall prompting Paul Stanley to deliver a weather report halfway through the show. He informed fans it's snowing hard out there. He wasn't kidding. And by show's end, fans were scrambling to find a way out, remembers attendee Dave Kakowski. I just remember after how horrible the, the snow was. It was, it had to be a couple feet, easy. And so they were telling everybody, if you got somebody that's supposed to pick you up, please tell them that they cannot get into the entrance because... We can't clear it. It's too thick. You have to, you have to get your ride to, to park on 303 as close to the time that you tell them you're going to pick them up. And so I had to call on the phone afterwards and tell my dad, Dad, they're, they're not even letting people into the entrance to the parking lot because this, it's so bad. So just park on 303. And I, I told him, I said, give us like 20 minutes and we'll just kind of walk out there and then start looking for you. Kukowski did make it home. He was one of the lucky ones. Many fans were snowed in, forced to stay at local homes, businesses, and even the Coliseum. And that included Kiss, who spent the night at the venue with a few thousand fans, according to Gene Simmons. But they had the snowstorm of the century, and people literally couldn't leave. Parking lot had feet, I don't know, five, six feet of snow. And they didn't have enough trucks to come in and clear the stuff. They were busy in the city. So we slept at the arena. But we made sure that tons of food came in, pizza, you know, all kinds of stuff, so that you could feed the folks who were trapped in the arena. The snow accumulation would shut down schools and many businesses near Ridgefield for a few days. But it was nothing compared to what would come to Ohio and the Midwest two and a half weeks later. Dubbed the White Hurricane, a historic winter storm would arrive in the Ohio Valley, Great Lakes area on January 25th. Tim Taylor remembers driving in to anchor the news on WJW-TV 8 in Cleveland when the storm arrived. I don't think I drove over 20 miles an hour because you couldn't see more than two feet in front of you. And sometimes the wind, which hit 80 miles an hour, you couldn't even see that far. So, you know, luckily, because I was anchoring, and it's a second shift job, the traffic is normally lighter anyway, this was a double white-knuckle drive, wondering if your car was going to slide into a snow drift on 77 or, uh, you know, into a path of an 18-wheeler. The storm would feature some of the lowest barometric pressure readings ever recorded in the continental United States. The blizzard began its peak run in Cleveland the morning of January 26th. Wind gusts reached as high as 82 miles per hour as visibility was near zero. Wind chills dropped below minus 50 degrees. We had a front row seat from the second floor of the newsroom there at 55th and South Marginal, now Dick Goddard Way, uh, watching the, the cars and the trucks and the lights on I-90 were, were less than 100 yards away, and they were barely visible. And more often than not, you know, the huge windows on the second floor where our newsroom is, 
They were covered with ice and snow driven by those gale force winds coming off the lake. So, you know, looking back at the 40 years I drove downtown through every kind of weather over the years, that was by far the worst travel ever. It would go down as one of the worst winter storms to ever hit the region. Schools, businesses, and transportation halted for days. Over the years, it would become known as the Great Blizzard of 1978. The storm was so severe, the Ohio Turnpike had to be shut down. Sadly, 51 people lost their lives as a result of the storm. More than 5,000 National Guard members were called in to help. It shut down everything for a few days, but when it was over, it was over, and then they, they were cleaning up. It took a while, but I but the storm moved out fairly quickly. It was I think it was a couple of days, but still, I mean, you can imagine uh, the, the mess that it left. And I'm thinking, you know, there are people trapped in cars. The National Guard had to rescue people. I think uh, I remember there was a truck driver who survived for about a week, I think, down in the Mansfield area, I, in, down in that area. I think he, he was eating or drinking snow to stay alive. Yeah, it was insane. It was uh, pretty crazy. As the blizzard of 1978 was wrapping up, as was Kiss's Alive 2 tour in the United States. The band would head overseas in March for five sold-out shows at Tokyo's Budokan Arena. Later in 1978, the band was so big, each member released their own highly anticipated solo album. However, for some, that marked a turning point for the band. In 1980, Kiss would go unmasked, which truly marked the end of an era, says longtime fan Cahill. Before 78, they were the show. Their, their movement, their energy on stage, they were the show and they just happened to have effects and bombs and stuff going off as a backdrop. By 79, they were completely, they, they were relying on all the effects and they weren't as much the show. They weren't putting out the same level of energy. 78 was like a transition period. There was still some energy on stage, but they were starting to uh, uh, rely on all the gadgets and trickery. Where for me, when they were truly great, was when that stuff just supported what they were doing and the energy they had on stage. KISS continues to perform today, with different members alongside Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. The band even streamed a massive New Year's Eve concert in Dubai in 2020. Still, by most measures and fan recollections, 1978 stands as the biggest period of KISS. And yet, Gene Simmons has his own surprising take on what represents Peak Kiss to him. Uh, Peak might be the very first tour. And that's because when you're young and you don't know anything, you do really stupid things. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to start breathing fire at every show. Now we're approaching our 50th year soon. Uh, you, you don't think of the long, oh, I'm going to be doing that when I'm 71. Yep. So peak was the early days when you throw caution to the wind and you dive into the deep end of the pool when you're not even sure you can swim. That's what rock is. That's when it's peak. That's when it's take no prisoners. We were doing 240 shows that first uh, year. We toured six days out of the, we did shows six days out of the week and sometimes two shows a day. Got into the back of a station wagon, two guys slept in the back and two guys sat up front. And we would travel 10 hours between shows and go in and put on these, well, in, in my case, all leather outfits that were standing in the corner because of all the sweat and everything. And it was cold out so that it would become rigid. You literally couldn't bend them over, if you know what I mean. So they'd have to heat it up on the heater and it would smell like your asshole on wipe. Because between the saddle soap and the leather softener and my sweat, it was just 
like I crawled out of Satan's ass. Those were the, if you're talking about peak, that's the peak. When it didn't matter how tired you were, you were doing God's work. It was electric church. You were on a crusade. You were just like, uh, I don't have to do a nine to five. God bless for the uh, glorious sum total of $75 a week. That's it for this episode of CLE Rocks. For more, visit our pages on Acast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. I'm Troy L. Smith. Until next time.